Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am intending to cover in this audio 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. We're going to call this section of Scripture the support of widows, as Paul gives instruction to Timothy how to deal with the widows in the church. So we start with verses 1 and 2. Paul tells Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and with all propriety the younger women as sisters. Now, when Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, that could be an elder. Do not rebuke an elder. And now you see that the possibility of interpreting that as an official elder in a church. Ellison, the commentator, takes that view, whereas, or he suggests that view, he suggests another view, as, law, as, as so does Gill, Clark, and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, that this is just referring to an older man in general. Now, the context indicates this because the verse is talking about an older man, a young, younger men, older women, and younger women. So it's talking about age. It's not talking about official ministry gifts in the church. Now, why would Paul say, do not rebuke an older man? Because it's hard for a young man like Timothy to rebuke an older man. Older men don't like that. What's this young whippersnapper coming up and telling me something? I've lived twice his age. I've got twice as much as experience, and he's trying to tell me something. Elder men need honor, respect, and deference, and so it's hard to rebuke an older man. This is what Adam Clark says. There are but few cases in which it at all becomes a young man to reprove an old man, and especially one who is a father in the church. And this is why, in my opinion, why elders need to be old relative to most of the people in the local body. That's why they're called elders, because they're older. Makes it real hard for a young man to rebuke an older man. Now, it's impossible for an elder to be older than everybody in a church, as is the case here with Timothy. Because a lot of times you have old men who are not leader t- types, and they, or they just don't are not gifted to lead a church, and, but they're older in the other church. Well, Timothy's got to be real gentle, and any any elder's got to be real gentle with exhorting an older man like that, or any any church leader. When I say elder, I mean a, a, a church elder has got to be very gentle when he's rebuking an, a chronologically elder man. Exhort him as a father. So there, instead of commanding him and rebuking him, you exhort him, you know, maybe you ought not to do that. And also, younger men as brothers... You don't boss them around. I'm the elder here. I'm the big shot. They're your brothers, elders. That's why I hate this idea of the presbytery, the council of elders, this ecclesiastical nonsense that and, and connotations we put on just a band of brothers, because that's what elders are, and younger men are your brothers too. The older women as mothers. Don't rebuke them. But exhort them, and with all propriety, the younger women as sisters. And, of course, when he says propriety, I'm sure he means romantic and sexual propriety. Don't start coming on to them, the younger women as sisters. Now, notice that all these exhortations are done as in a family. We got father, we got brother, we got mother, and we got sister, which are basically all the kinds of members of a family that you got because the church is a spiritual family. Now, sometimes you might have to rebuke a little bit harder. You might have to be a little bit more direct if the situation is serious, just like in a family. But generally, exhortation and example is the best way to lead in a church. Now, Paul mentions the younger women as sisters. Ellison says that there are two special reasons to single out the younger women to Timothy. First of all, is Timothy's age. Paul wanted to make sure romantic things didn't hinder Timothy's ministry. 
Because I'll tell you what, man, men and women's the relationship between men and women can cause all sorts of complications, as you well know. I use I have a saying I use all the time when something like that comes up. I said, why didn't God just make one sex? It would have been so much easier. But he didn't. Well, Paul could have mentioned the sisters to Timothy because of Timothy's relatively young age. I imagine Timothy's not married. You don't hear anything about him being married. It also could be because that the false teachers were sexually exploiting the sisters, the younger women in the church, by going around, listening to their troubles, teaching them spiritual things. One thing leads to another because they're at home with the woman while the husband's out working. Second Timothy 3.6 says this, For among them are those who worm their way into households, among the false teachers, those who worm their way into households and capture idle women burdened down with sins, led along by a variety of passions. That sounds like there's something sexual going on there. Something that ain't quite copacetic. So I think that's what he means when he says propriety. First Timothy 5.3, Paul tells Timothy, Support widows who are genuinely widows. Now the ESV translation has honor widows who, and the my translation I'm using here, Home and Christian Study Bible, says support widows. Well, that is a translation issue. Let me look at some options that support what support could mean. First option, a salary for services rendered. Give the widows a salary? I don't think you give widows a salary. They didn't give anybody a salary. Elders didn't have salaries in the New Testament church. So what could it be then? Well, voluntary offerings. Now the Greek word here for support is honor. Timon, the imperative of Timao, is to honor. Now what does honor mean? And remember, that's exactly how uh, many translations translate this verse here, is to honor the widows. Thayer's definition for Timao, honor, doesn't have a definition meaning salary. It means honor, like an honorarium that you give a speaker, which technically and specifically means a gift, not a salary for the speaker having to come, although it degenerates into a salary. But, but, but actually, the original meaning of the word was to give a gift for somebody who spoke free of charge. First definition that Thayer gives for tamao, to honor, to estimate, fix the value. Second and last definition, to honor, to have an honor, to revere, to venerate. So... This the, this word honor of the widows that are widows that are genuine widows. It either means to give them a salary, it means to give them voluntary offerings, or as according to the second definition of Thayer's, it could mean third option to honor them, to revere them, to hold them in respect. But whatever it means, it does not mean a salary or a wage. There are two other words Paul could have used here that means salary: misthos. Thayer's defines misthos as dues paid for work, wages, and hire. Now, wouldn't that be a perfect word if that's what Paul meant? How about opsonion, another word that Thayer's describes as a soldier's pay, an allowance? He could have used other words, but he says honor the widows, support widows. So if it does mean financial support, and here I think it does mean financial support, it's not a salary, it's voluntary gifts to the widows who are genuine widows. Now, what is a genuine widow? It means a widow with no support, as Ellison says. Now, what are the conditions to be a genuine widow? First of all, the widow has to be in genuine need. She needs the money. And the second requirement is she has no family to take care of her. 
as Clark also says, and Ellison says, we'll turn to 1 Timothy 5, 4, our next verse. What does it say? It says, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents, for this pleases God. So a widow is not to look to the church first for support, but for her own family, her children or grandchildren. 1 Timothy 5:16. if any believing woman has widows in her family, let her help them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can help widows in genuine need. So, verse 4 and 1 Timothy 5, children or grandchildren take care of the widows. Verse 16, uh, any believing woman in the widow's family takes care of the widow, but not the church. church didn't have enough money to take care of every widow. Now, I said that a widow who is a genuine widow, John Gill says that what Paul means here is she's a widow She's not merely a divorced woman. Don't call a divorced woman a widow. In other words, a real widow is one who had her husband who died. Well, I don't think so, because Paul just doesn't say anything about divorced women here. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Okay, so we assume that we're talking about giving financial support, not a salary, but just love offerings, if you will, to widows who genuinely need the help. We go to verses 4 and 5 in First Timothy 5. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents, for this pleases God. You want to be godly? You take care of your parents. You repay your parents. After all, they supported you when you were a little kid and didn't have any means of support. So now that they're old and can't work and don't have means of support, well, then you support them. That pleases God, Paul tells Timothy. That is how you practice godliness. So the children and grandchildren in the church must learn something. They must learn to practice godliness. They need to take their lessons, take care of their family. The real widow, the genuine widow, verse 5, left all alone, has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. So I suppose that's another qualification. I said she needs to be really in need and she doesn't have any family members that can take care of her. And also she needs to be acting, behaving morally, not self-indulgent as in verse 6, but putting her hope in God and continuing night and day in her petitions and prayers. So let's go over that again. The first requirement is she needs to be supported by her relatives. The second condition is she needs to be godly and not behaving immorally, continuing night and day in her petitions and prayers. The third condition is, is she needs to be in genuine need. She needs the money needs the money, doesn't have anybody to support her, and she's living godly. Then we take care of the widows. Now, let me finish this commentary on this verse by pointing out that John Gill agrees with me about what this means to honor the widows or support the widows. He says this, giving gifts to the poor or providing for their maintenance is doing them honor. And that, and that is the sense here. And I emphasize what Gill says, giving gifts to the poor. And a salary is not giving gifts, folks. It's paying a wage. It's not the same thing. Now, John Gill has one more kind of off-the-wall suggestion that supporting widows or honoring widows means to make them deacon, deaconesses. I don't think so. John Gill is so creative in his imagination, and he has some interesting stuff. That's why I use him. But sometimes he speculates too much. Now, let's look at one word here that's interesting to me in verse 5, the real widow left all alone. Now think about this widow that's all alone. Is she happy or unhappy? Well, she's put her hope in God. She continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. This seems to me to cut across the commonly held idea that people need to be happy to be married to be happy. In other words, it's necessary to be married to be happy. Now I've always kind of thought that way. 
After all, it's harder for single men to be happy than it is for single women. But there's a lot of single women that manage to live a happy life by being single. They buy a cat, fix up their house, they're happy, and they pray. Now, I like this verse also to point out another practical thing. And a lot of times you don't have opportunity to ministry like you'd like to. So you're kind of alone, you're stuck, like Paul was stuck in the prison in Rome under house arrest. Maybe not in prison, but in house arrest. He was left all alone. What did he do? He kept on witnessing, he kept on praying. Well, this woman here is kind of stuck. She's left all alone, but what's she doing? She prays night and day, all the time, constantly, praying to God. So that's a ministry. I love these Christians in the body of Christ who talk about prayer. Like E.M. Bounds, remember that book he wrote on prayer? Praying all the time because... You know, this idea of throwing a couple of 15-second prayer up to God and expecting Him to bless you, that's just crazy. It's not going to work that way. So anyway, these widows are praying all the time. We go to verse 6. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And this is talking about widows who are not qualified to get support from the church, from people in the church. Self-indulgent is the Holman Christian Study Bible. That's not quite as good as the New American Standard Bible, which says she gives herself to wanton pleasure. It's a little bit more descriptive. The New Revised Standard Version says she lives for pleasure. Well, that sounds pretty bad. I don't know what kind of pleasure this woman is after, whether she's eating and drinking to be married or whether it's talking about she's going around having sex with a bunch of people. I don't know. I, I wouldn't think so. Hopefully not. Could be, though. Gives herself the wanton pleasure. Ellison says it's widows who turn to prostitution to make a living. Well, but that's, that's is that wanton pleasure or is that loving money or needing money? It's not really pleasure. It's not really indulging your desires, indulging yourself. It's going out and making a living. So I don't think that's what it, what this means here. Ellison says it could be a widow seduced by a false teacher. Remember these false teachers that are going around that we mentioned in chapter 3, holding to the form of godliness. This is verse 5 and 7 and 5, 6 and 7 in chapter 3. Holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people for among them are those who worm their way into households and capture idle women burdened down with sins, led along by a variety of passions. Always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. A variety of passions sounds like there's some hanky-panky going on between these false teachers and the women. I don't know that for sure, but it sounds like it. And so Ellison says this could be a widow seduced by a false teacher is dead even while she lives. This, of course, is opposite to the widow in verse 5 we just read, who spends night and day in prayers and petitions before God. And, of course, when it says dead, she's dead even while she lives. How can you be dead and alive at the same time? Well, you're physically alive bodily, but you're dead spiritually. Verse 7, 1 Timothy 5, command this also so they won't be blamed. Oh, we're telling Timothy to give a command to the church. Well, I don't think so. Now, Ellison does. He says that the word means to use strict military commands. And he, for example, 1 Timothy 4.11, Paul tells Timothy, command and teach these things. Ellison says these were not suggestions. These were not items of personal preference. Is Ellison correct? Well, I don't think so, and I'm going to give you good arguments against him. The Greek word there is a form of parangelo, command this, parangeli, the imperative form of parangelo, command this. Here's what Thayer's says about parangelo, to command. To transmit a message along from one to another. To declare, to announce. That, folks, is not command. Now, there is another definition of parangelo that is command, but there's also this definition. To transmit a message, which just means tell everybody. To declare everybody, announce to everybody that, hey, support the widows who are genuinely in need, don't have a relative to support them, and who are praying day and night. Support those guys. 
I'm telling you this. I'm just telling you this. I'm, it's not like Timothy's to go to the churches in Ephesus and say, I command you because I am the big shot here. I'm the top dog. You listen to me. And if you don't, God's going to be angry with you. That's what the word command sounds like. But that's not what it means. Consider other English translations. Here's the contemporary English version and the New Century version. It says, tell this also to the churches. Just tell them. Here's the NIV, the Good News Translation, and the New Revised Standard. Give them the information. Give, tell, give, not command. And consider what Paul has already said in verses 1 through 2. He tells Timothy, verses 1 through 2 in chapter 5, he tells Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Does it say command him as a father? No, he says exhort him. Exhort the younger men as brothers. Exhort the older women as mothers. And exhort the younger women as sisters with all purity. Exhort. That's not command. That's urge. To advise. To encourage. It doesn't mean to command. Folks, a church is a voluntary organization. Church leaders who command get bad results. They get contempt on the part of the one commanded. Or they might get noncompliance on the part of the one commanded. Or they could get sheepish cult-like obedience on the part of the commanded people who worship the pastor. He said, I should do this, and so therefore I'm going to do it. Like this prophet guy. He, I'm not going to mention his name because I get him mixed up with another prophet guy that did something stupid. But this particular bad prophet, he he gets a bunch of sisters in his office. And he says, you know, we're going to get close to God. You know, so I'm going to prophesy over you. But to get close to God, you need to take your clothes off. And, of course, that's horrible, but the sad part about it is the women did that. Well, why did they do that? Because they're in the presence of a godly man, a guru who has a hotline to God, and so, therefore, they're going to listen to everything he says, and they're going to do it. And that's what happens when you get church leaders going around bossing everybody around and commanding. That's why I hate this translation, quite frankly. I remember a good friend of mine came crawling back to a dictatorial pastor pope in a charismatic church, and this so-called pastor asked my friend to bow down as he was to kneel down as my friend was kneeling down confessing his sins before God but while he was kneeling down to the pastor and then the pastor licked, leans his head over him and where nobody else in the church could hear but my friend could hear it he said I just love it when I win and of course my friend should have got up and slugged him between the eyes but he had been beaten down by this so-called pastor this pastor pope and so he took it, and it messed him up big time. He still talks about it to this day, 30, 40 years later. We don't need that kind of guru leadership in the church. We need to exhort, not command. So Paul says, tell this also. I'm not even going to say that word, command, even though my home Christian study Bible has it. Tell this also so they won't be blamed. What is the this referred to? Well, supporting the widows that are godly. Support the widows that need to be supported. So they won't be blamed. Well, who's the they? Well, it means those in the church who are not supporting the widows would be blamed if they didn't. Now, it could mean that Clark says it can't mean the widows so that the widows would be blamed, would not be blamed. I don't know why you would say it would be the widows. It's the people in the church who are not supporting the widows that would be blamed. Don't. And Paul, of course, is very concerned about reputations of his churches. He mentions that in lots of cases. And here's another case. Don't let the church be blamed for not taking care of its widows. First Timothy 5.8 But if anyone does not provide for his own, that is his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
Now, Ellison makes a point here which I totally disagree with. He says this if here, if anyone does not provide for his own, is a first-class conditional in Greek. And he says that means there, is a, there are actually some who were neglecting to provide. And that is not what the first-class conditional in Greek says. The first-class conditional in Greek says, well, let us assume for the sake of argument that something is true. But just for the sake of argument, it doesn't necessarily mean it's actually true. So it says here, if anyone, for the sake of argument, does not provide for his own, then he is denied the faith. So that's a hypothetical if. That does not mean that people were actually in Ephesus not providing for their family. It could be Paul was just exhorting Timothy that, as a hypothetical, if it happens, I'm going to let you know in advance this guy's denied the faith. If anyone, now that would include the children and grandchildren of 1 Timothy 5, 4, who's supposed to take care of the widows and their family, or the believing women in the family that's supposed to take care of the widows, anybody does not provide for his own in his own family. His own means his own family, that is, in his own household. Now, household means is referring to a poor relative who lives under the believer's roof. So if you take him in, you got to feed him. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul means that you got to go out and support every third cousin that you got once removed who's an alcoholic bum. No. But if you take him into your house, that means it's your duty to support him, and you need to support him. Give him enough food and clothes so that he can live a normal life. If you don't do that, supply for the relatives in your household. If you don't do that, you have denied the faith. Now, some people say, well, that means this Christian has lost his salvation. He doesn't take care of his people in his household, and he's going to hell because of it. No, that's not what it means. It says denied the faith. It does not say he denied his faith. He's not an apostate. What he's done is he's denied the principles of the Christian religion. The objective teachings of the Christian faith have been denied when you don't take care of people in your household. Even unbelievers help their families out. That's why it says he's worse than an unbeliever, because unbelievers help that support their family. And now you as a Christian are not going to support your family, your family members? You have really denied the faith. Now, I know a true story here. I had a masseuse who was kind of a high school, well, she was a high school graduate, didn't go to college when I was in China, and she lived in a very conservative Chinese village. And I got to learn all kinds of stuff about what goes on in a little conservative Chinese village. Stuff that a cultural anthropologist would have loved to have heard about. I got to hear this every week. She gave me a massage every Friday. And so I tried to witness to her. And she tells me she's not interested in being a Christian. I said, why not? She said, well, she knew somebody in her little village who claimed to be a Christian. And he didn't take care of his mother or his parents. And, oh, she didn't like him. She didn't like him at all. And so she didn't like Christians. Well, it turns out, of course, in China, especially in traditional China, that is one thing you just don't do. You don't leave your parents in the lurch. I mean, you honor your ancestors, and in some cases, you worship your ancestors. I mean, you don't not take care of them. And so this guy's gospel message was completely not listened to by this masseuse. So I kept trying. I tried several things. I got another Christian sister from our fellowship group to come talk to her, figuring her she could do it better in Chinese than I could, and that didn't do any good. And year goes by, and I finally got her. I said, hey, why don't you just pray that if God is real, if Jesus is real, he'll reveal himself to you. A year later, out of the blue, she tells me she wants a book of mine. I think I'm getting ready to leave the city. And she saw the books on my shelf. They were Chinese Christian books, which she could read. And I said, why do you want to read those? You don't believe. And she says, oh, I'm a Christian now. I said, you are? Why? She said, well, I prayed what you said. If Jesus revealed himself to me and 
all my customers, it seems like almost all of my customers are, are Christians, and they are all treat me so nice. And so she became a believer. But she was not going to become a believer because a Christian was not taking care of his household. He had denied the faith. We go to 1 Timothy 5, 9. No widow should be placed on the official support list unless she is at least 60 years old, has been the wife of one husband. Now, this verse has caused me a lot of trouble because it just seems so strange to me because we don't have widows list in churches today and why 60 years old why that particular number well the official support list is how Holman Christian Study Bible translates this the Greek term is a legal register here's some options as, as to why these women on this list should be supported first of all it's because they were poor second because they were providing ministry to the church as Gill and Clark and Ellison suggest and, and Ellison affirms now, 1 Timothy 5.10, the next verse seems to support that. This widow, having, who in verse 9, is said to be the wife of one husband. In verse 10, she is well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work, well, then it sounds like she is a widow who is providing ministry to the church, not just any widow. All right, so the options is who's on this list is just any poor widow, option one, option two, uh, widows who were particularly providing ministry to the church. And option three is they're the same as the deaconesses in the church. No difference. Jameson Fawcett Brown denies option three. He says deaconesses had virgins as well as widows among the deaconesses. Deaconesses, according to the Council of Ch Chalcedon, had to be 40, not 60. And so that's an interesting speculation. There should be deaconesses. I don't really think that's pro probably true. I think that the answer is not poor widows in general, but particular widows who are officially providing ministry to the church. And we'll, I'll talk about why in just a minute. I think that. But first of all, let's go to this number 60. She shouldn't be on the official support list unless she is at least 60 years old. Why would 60 be chosen? Well, because if she's 60, she's probably at that age going to not want to remarry, being too old. If she was younger than 60, she might want to remarry and thus forget her calling as a widow who serves. We get that idea from verses 11 and 12 in chapter 5, 1 Timothy, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when they are drawn away from Christ by desire, they want to marry and will therefore receive condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. They want to get married instead of being official, an official widow, assuming that's what that means, an official widow on the list, which is what I take it to mean. Another reason Paul might have chosen 60 is because widows under 60 might have been able to contribute to their own support. It'd be easier for an under 60-year-old woman to work and weaving and spinning, whatever a woman could do back then, probably not too much, but she could at least have a better shot at supporting herself than when she's 60. So 60 makes sense logically from that viewpoint, but the exact number 60 is what bothers me. Why would Paul choose such an exact number? It seems like this would be too restrictive to me. What if the deserving widow was 59 and a half? What if she was 58 and she's poor and she has no relatives to take care of her and she is morally upright? We're going to say, well, but she's not 60. We're not going to feed her? Would the church let her go hungry? Well, I don't think so. So that there's a problem here with this number 60. Well, this is a suggested answer to the problem. This is from the commentator Ellicott. He says this, the widow's list was an official list of the church separate from the poor widows. In other words, the three options as to who these widows were, I gave you A, poor widows in general, B, 
official widows on the widows list. And C, deaconesses will option two is what Ellicott says. It's an official list of widows separate from the other poor widows in the church. The other poor widows in the church, sure, it doesn't matter how old they are. If they are of good reputation, if they don't have any Christian relatives to take care of them, and if they are in financial need, well, yeah, take care of them, whether they're 40 or whether they're 59. But if you're going to put them on the official church list, well, these people are people, women who have particularly served the members of the church and who receive special honor for that. They need to be 60 before they can get put on the official list. And if they're under 60, well, they'll get supported. They just won't get recognized as being on the widow's list. That's the best I can do with that little problem. Now, one other requirement for these widows on the widow's list. She she has to be the wife of one husband, a one-man woman. Now, elders are supposed to be the husband of one wife. By the way, husband of one wife. Does that sound like women elders to you? That reminds me of a friend of mine was in a church, and they decided to have a woman elder. Now, one of the elders of this church was good friends with this woman, and he knew her well, so that's how he got away with what he said. He didn't believe in women elders, but he was good friends with this woman. So, so when they were just, when they were questioning her to see whether she was qualified to be an elder, um, he said, uh, he, "Let's call her Jane." He said, "Jane, are you are you the husband of one wife?" And everybody starts laughing because obviously she's a woman; she couldn't be the husband of one wife. And he was making a subtle point. You ain't qualified to be an elder. I wish I'd have thought of that when I was going over that audio covering that passage, and I didn't do it. But here we have the widow on the list needs to be the wife of one husband. And the same issues come up. Does that mean that she could never have been divorced and remarried? Because then she'd be the wife of two husbands. Could she have never been widowed and remarried? Well, well, obviously. Yeah, if she could not be widowed and then remarried... Does that mean what it means to be the wife of one husband? Well, and I guess she'd have to be widowed again if she's going to be on the widow's list. So is Paul saying, look, if you got married, you got widowed, and then you got married again, and then you widowed again, oh, you've had two husbands now, you're not eligible to be on the widow's list? That is not what it means. 1 Timothy 5.14 says this, I want younger women, and that's referring to widows, I want younger widows to marry. Well, Paul is saying if you want the widows to marry, then why would he disqualify them from the widows list when he tells them, I want them to marry? First Timothy 5.14. The context of that verse is, is about widows. In fact, it's just a few verses from where we are now. He tells, I want the younger widows to marry. So that's not what he's talking about. How about divorced women? The same thing. I, 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 I doubt very seriously he's talking about a divorced woman who is then left without a husband and has no women relatives or children or grandchildren to support her, are we going to say, well, she can't be put on the list, even if it was the man's fault that caused the divorce? I don't think so. Talking about whether she could be widowed twice and married twice, Romans 7, 2 says, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while she lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law. Regarding the husband, so she's released from the law. What's wrong with her remarrying again? She's free. So if she remarries, Paul tells them, the widows, I want them to marry again. And Romans, and Paul, and, and Romans, Paul says it's okay for a woman to marry again. So why in the world would he penalize them for doing what he says is perfectly okay? Why would he keep them off the widows list? That ain't what it is. Now, how about this? I want the the widow to be the wife of one husband and not have two husbands currently at the present time, two alive husbands. In other words. 
I don't want the widow to be a polyandrist. Of course, it couldn't be at the current time because she's a widow. So she would she would be married to two husbands at the same time, and then both of them would die. That was very uncommon. Even if there was polygamy, polyandry is even more uncommon than polygamy. That can't be it. Now, another option is this, and I think this is the true option. She should be a one-man woman. She should live in conjugal fidelity with her deceased husband. She should have lived in conjugal fidelity with her deceased husband. This is Adam Clark and Ellicott's view, and I think they're exactly right. The Greek is a woman of one man, enos andros gunei, and andros are genitive of one man, a woman, a woman of one man, a one man woman. She lives. She's got to be sexually faithful to be put on the widow's list. Well, that makes sense. First Timothy 5:10. Continuing with the qualifications for the widow on the widow's, widow's list, she is well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. She's well known. That means both by church members and those without her reputation has spread. See, Paul's big on reputation. She has brought up children. Now, that doesn't mean that she must have children to get on the widow's list, according to Ellison. That means if she has brought up children. In fact, the word if is there, if she has brought up children. If she has children, she's raised them well. And it could refer to children of others, by the way. It doesn't necessarily mean her own children. And it could mean brought up children in the Christian faith, not necessarily brought them up to socialize and civilize them. If she has shown hospitality, and of course, when Paul is talking about hospitality, he's most probably talking about the boarding of itinerant Christian leaders. That doesn't mean what she welcomed any and everybody into her home, but especially traveling Christian teachers and apostles and prophets. Ellison says this. It says that she has helped the afflicted, and that's probably those who were in the church, but it might also include helping her lost neighbors, either in their body or in their mind. They could be sick, afflicted, or they could be afflicted from grief. She's devoted herself to every good work, and she's washed the feet of the saints. Washing feet was a very usual thing that was done in the hot Middle East, but it was a mean and low office. Slaves usually do it. So if a widow was washing the saint's feet, that means she was condescending to do the lowest and most menial type of work, which shows her character was good. First Timothy 5, 11 and 12, Paul says, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when they are drawn away from Christ by desire, they want to marry and will therefore receive condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. Now, when Paul says, hey, this is not good, they're drawn away and want to marry, it sounds like he's criticizing marriage or denouncing marriage even. No, he's referring to a pledge the widow's made to stay unmarried. The younger widow says, okay, I want to stay unmarried. I want to be on the official church uh, list for being a widow. I want to help the church out. Well, if you get married, it's going to interfere with that. So they, they, they pledge to the members of the church, I'm not going to get married. I'm going to stay on the list. I want to be on the list and help the church. And, of course, that would mean they'd be supported by gifts from people in the church. And then all of a sudden, because they're young, they get married and they renounce their pledge because they have renounced their original pledge. That's not their pledge to stay married. It's talking about their pledge to the church to be on the widow's list. And they will receive condemnation because of that. People will look down on them and say, ooh, that is not a good thing. By the way, the KGV has damnation, and they will therefore receive damnation because they've renounced their original pledge to be on the widow's list. Now, Ellison says this is much too strong a word to translate crino. Vows were serious, but it's not a damnation issue. You're not going to be damned and go to hell because you didn't serve on the widow's list like you said you were going to. 
Now, these younger widows that aren't going to get put on the list, Paul says they are drawn away from Christ by desire. Now, of course, he doesn't mean all younger widows. He just means there's, there's a possibility that some might do this. They are drawn away by desire. What kind of desire? Well, it could be, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown affirms this, that it's just the normal desire to get married, which everybody has, or most everybody. And so they would desire to get married. That would take them off the widow's list. They can't help the church. they got to serve their husband instead. Or Paul could be saying they're drawn away from Christ by desire, desire being defined, as John Gill defines it, wanton, loose, and licentious life. They want to live in carnal lust and pleasures. They want to be at ease and without labor. Well, I tend to think that's not what Paul's talking about. They're drawn away from Christ by the desire to get married. That's what I think he's talking about. However, in this negative sense of desire that these young widows might have, First Timothy 5, 6, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So maybe Paul is thinking about women who can't control their lust, especially with these false teachers floating around and seducing them. Maybe that's what he's talking about. But at any rate, they're subject to that. But if they're 60 years old, they're not likely going to have desires to get married again, whether normal, legitimate desires or lustful desires. They're going to be settled down. They're going to serve the church. First Timothy 5.13, at the same time, they, these younger widows, under 60 widows, also learn to be idle, going from house to house. They are not only idle, but are also gossips and busybodies, saying things they shouldn't say. Why would these young widows be going from house to house? Well, Ellison points out that they could be doing daily care and distribution of food to members of the house churches, just going taking care of people. Maybe they were going house to house. Remember, the church back then was in houses, and you had to go from house to house if you were going to visit people in the church. Maybe they were these younger widows were going house to house just to check on believers to see how they were doing. Ellison suggests that. But at any rate, as they went, they saw all the women. The men are out working. They see the women going from house to house, and they start talking about, did you see Sister Susie and hanging around with that false teacher? Man, they sure had the look of love in their eyes. And blah, blah, blah. I think Sister Susie should be brought before the church and disciplined and on and on like that, being a busybody. Busybody means you're interfering with somebody else's business because you get all that information going from house to house, picking up on the household gossip. Now, that's one option. But it could be they were going from house to house spreading false doctrine, false doctrine, the same false doctrine that had been forced upon them and which had tricked them, as we read in Second Timothy 3, 5, and 7. These false teachers are holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. For among them are those who worm their way into households and capture idle women burdened down with sins, led along by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So, yeah, they could be going around instead of just gossiping, but actually spreading false doctrine, Gnostic stuff, Jewish legalistic stuff. Clark suggests that what they were spreading is, quote, lies, slanders, calumnies, backbiting their neighbors, and everywhere sowing the seed of dissension. That's not false teaching. That's just your general gossip. Clark says these gossips and busybodies were tattlers, talebearers, whisperers, light, trifling persons, all noise and no work. Well, obviously, you're not going to put people like that on the on the list. But Paul even goes so far further than that and says don't even put people 40 year, younger than 60 on the list because they might be tempted to do that. He's being extra careful. 
We go to verse 14, 1 Timothy 5. Therefore, I want younger women to marry, have children, manage their household, and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. See, that's the thing. Single widows, single women in general back then, they, they couldn't go out and get a job, really. And they didn't have a husband. They didn't have children to keep them busy. So what are they going to do? They're going to sit around, twiddle their thumbs, and gossip. So Paul says, don't do that. Let's get married, younger women. And the women here is referring to widows. Obviously, that's what we've been talking about is widows. The whole first 16 verses is about widows. I want younger women, younger, the younger women, the younger widows to marry. So that, as I mentioned earlier, that means second marriage was not an evil thing in Paul's eyes. It's perfectly all right. There was in the East, there's a big prejudice against second marriage. I remember in China, I had a 25, 26 year old landlord one time in, in Shanghai. And she, I was making small talk with her, and she tells me that she's a widow. I'm so sorry. And then I said, Well, you're young, you can get married again. She said, No, I'm not going to get married again. I said, Why not? She says, I'm going to stay faithful to my husband till I die. I said, Oh, jeez. 25 year old girl's not going to get married again. And so I mentioned this to a Chinese student of mine. I said, I don't understand this thing. And that's, it was a cultural thing. She says, oh, I do. She says in China, in, in old China especially, it was considered a very honorable thing for a widow to remain faithful to her dead husband by not remarrying. And so I can imagine that that same idea would be in that ancient Near Eastern culture that Paul was operating in. However, Paul says, no, it's okay. I want you to remarry. None of this. Paul wasn't concerned about kowtowing the culture. Now, notice that these, Paul asked these women to manage their households. Now, can you imagine somebody telling that to a woman today in our hyper-feminized, feminist culture? Homemaker, oh, God, you're just wasting your talents. You're not seeing the world. You're not traveling. You're not swinging through the corporate jungle. You're just a housewife. You're just a pathetic housewife. You know, of course, these feminist types that do this, they break up marriages they farm their kids out to daycare centers and let the daycare people raise them instead of them raising them, or they farm them out to nannies. You know how it is living in our society, and it sucks. It's just sickening. It's a full-time job to raise kids, folks. Paul says, manage their own household. It is a you look at these blogs and websites and books for for Christian women and talk to talk about how. You know, you got to multitask, and you got to pick up the diapers, all the toys all over the place. I, I couldn't do it. It'd drive me crazy. I had three kids. I don't know why my wife did it. The kids can drive you crazy. And so a wife's got to manage her household while the husband's away. The little children are going to play, and the wives need to take care of the situation, regardless of what the feminists say. And then Paul says, after having said all these things about the women, wanting to marry, wanting to have children, manage their households, he says, I want to give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. Well, who's the adversary? Well, that could be Satan. That's what his name is, adversary. Ellison thinks it's Satan. Could be, a, or suggested it might be Satan. It could be a false teacher. I don't want the adversary. That sounds like a one particular false teacher who's been jumping on us. I think that's unlikely because it was probably more than one false teacher. I think it's probably the devil. I don't want the devil... To have a beachhead, that's what opportunity means. I don't want to have the devil to have a beachhead to accuse us. The devil's always got to have a way to get in your life. He just doesn't walk in. He doesn't have that kind of power. He's got to, you've got to let him in by ignoring all the, the armor of righteousness, the breastplate of the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of faith, and so forth, all that. You've got to ignore shoes shod with preparation for the gospel of peace. All that stuff, you take the armor off, the devil will walk in. 
I said, but if you guard yourself, then you will give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. I was just reading about a scandal, a financial scandal of a big mission organization. And I thought, well, you know, that's a lot of money he was handling. It was millions of dollars. But other people have managed millions of dollars in the ministry and have never had a whiff of scandal. Think of Pat Robertson. Oh, everybody jumps on him because he's charismatic and ran for president and said some nutty things. But there's nobody ever suggested he'd done anything financially inappropriate. So I'm saying, well, if Pat Robertson can do it, why can't everybody do it? Don't give the adversary an opportunity to accuse him. Now, this this missionary who was defending himself against financial skullduggery, let's just assume he was correct. He was right. He got kicked out of the EFCA, the watchdog agency that evangelical organizations adhere to, to assure donors that there's no skullduggery going on. Well, how do you get kicked out of that unless you've done something? Even if it just looked bad, maybe it wasn't bad, but it needs to be transparent where everybody can see it so that nobody will have the opportunity to accuse you. In other words, it's not good enough to be innocent. You've got to be so innocent that nobody has a chance to even accuse you of, of doing something wrong. And if you're a real conservative, that way you'll save a lot of grief in your life. I mean, this brother was broken down in half about what happened to him after he goes through the courts and the press and friends not talking to him. It was a pretty horrible situation. He even contemplated suicide which, of course, was straight from the devil. He, he got past it, and I guess he's recovered now. I don't know, but I'll tell you, Paul was very concerned about the reputation of his churches, and he says, I don't want my church. I don't, Timothy, I don't want the churches of Christ to have gossiping women running around telling tales on each other and spreading dissension in the church. We don't want to have the devil an opportunity to accuse us. And especially don't want young widows who, because of their desire, want to get married. Does that mean they're going out and trying to fornicate or actually fornicating? Their licentiousness would cause people to blame the church. I don't know what the custom was of women back then, but I've gotten to the point now I think that everybody. I remember an old country song, Don't Anybody Make Love at Home Anymore. Does Everyone Possess the Urge to Cheat? It was a great song. Because that's exactly what I was thinking about America. And probably true back in the other days, too. They just didn't talk about it so much. I don't know. But at any rate, we're not going to have women on the widow's list to give the church a bad reputation. We go to verse 15, 1 Timothy 5. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. Some widows have turned to follow Satan. Now, what does he mean there? Maybe Paul is referring to a specific example, such as we see in verse 6, and another specific example in verse 13. 1 Timothy 5, 6 says, However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And of course, the other translation of that was she had wanton pleasures. That sounds like she's screwing around. 1 Timothy 5, 13, At the same time, they also learn to be idle. Going from house to house, they are not idle, but are also gossips and busybodies saying things they shouldn't say. And so that could have been those who have turned aside to follow Satan. But notice that the things they were doing was following Satan. You don't follow God, that's who you're following. What did Bob Dylan say? You got to serve somebody. You're either going to serve God, and if you don't serve him, you're following the devil. It's just as simple as that. So you could be following the devil by sexual sin, as Gill suggests, by gossip, by spreading false teaching, as Ellison and Gill suggest. However, whatever they were doing, it wasn't good, and they were not going to be put on the list. Verse 16, we'll finish up 1 Timothy 5. If any believing woman has widows in her family, she should help them, and the church should not be burdened so that it can help those who are genuinely widows. Again, generally means they're actually widows. That means they're generally in need. They generally don't have somebody to support them, and they are godly, have godly character. 
believing woman could be a sister, an aunt, or somebody besides the ch children or grandchildren. So Paul's basically covered children, grandchildren, and now a believing woman, which could be a sister, an aunt. There's somebody can take care of these women. So we don't burden the church. Remember, money was as it always is, but back then was kind of scarce. Ladies and gentlemen, we finished with the qualifications for widows in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16. In our next audio, we're going to start with 1 Timothy 5, 17, go to the end of the chapter, and now talk about how to honor elders, honor, honor, wilders for, honor widows. Paul talks, tells Timothy how to honor widows in the first half of the chapter 5, and then in the last half of chapter 5, he's going to talk about honoring elders. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.